0: listening to the Signs of Everything podcast, episode 88, Cartography and Earth's Seasons. I'm your host, James Fodor. So, the two topics that I've chosen to name this episode after might initially seem a bit distinct. I mean, what do maps have to do with the seasons of the Earth? But actually, if you think about it a little bit, they're very closely related because explaining Earth's seasons relates to the axial tilt of the Earth and the different latitudes, or basically distance from the equator um, of different parts of the world and when they're pointing away and and towards the sun. And understanding that has everything to do with understanding maps and latitude, longitude, the equator, and all of the details about the language of those. So, so that's why these two, can, these two subjects are, are put together in one episode because one directly relates to the other. So don't worry if you don't understand those concepts that I've been talking about. That's what I'm going to be explaining in this episode. Particularly, we'll talk about the language used to describe the Earth, so latitude, longitude, equator, poles, and all that stuff. We'll talk about map projections and uh, the trade-offs involved in those briefly. And then we'll apply that knowledge to talk about the seasons, so what a season is and a little bit on the background there. And then we'll focus uh, a lot of the episode on talking about axial tilt and how that changes between equinoxes and solstices and we'll also look at the differences in the seasons between equatorial mid-latitude and polar regions and how that differs from uh place on, on the globe and we'll talk also a little bit about solar insulation and how also that varies between uh, across latitudes and how that relates to the seasons. Recommended pre-listening is episode 22, Our Place in the Cosmos, and episode 87, The Geography of Planet Earth, might be somewhat helpful in, in setting the scene for this, although that's not super necessary. Okay, so let's start by outlining and discussing some of the concepts used to describe the planet Earth. So, the study of the shape of the Earth, together with its gravitational field, is called geodesy. And... The first step, really, in approaching geodesy is to be able to describe the shape of the Earth using mathematical means, and the way that's done, obviously, because the, the, the Earth is not a perfect sphere, it's got mountains and valleys and so on, and the height, the elevation varies across the planet, among other things, so we have to make some simplifications to describe this mathematically. The way that's done is by modelling the surface of the Earth by what's called a geoid, which essentially is a, a three-dimensional geometric shape. Particularly, uh, what's called an oblate spheroid is used to, to model the Earth. Uh, an oblate spheroid, is essentially, if you imagine a sphere and uh, think about a basketball, if that's helpful, and and situate it so that the the top of the basketball is facing up and the bottom uh, is is facing down, so you've got the the axis about which it spins pointing up and down. Now, if you were then to push. On the top of the basketball and squash it just a little bit so that it bulges a little bit around the center, that's an oblate spheroid. It's, it's essentially a, a bit of a fat sphere, one with a bit of a belly that, that um, bulges out in the center. It's contrasted with a, a prolate spheroid which is a sort of a, a tall skinny one, kind of like a football stand, uh, stood on end. So the Earth is an oblate spheroid. That means that the distance from one pole to the other pole is not the same as the distance around the equator. The equator is an imaginary line on the surface of the Earth that's equally distant from the North Pole and the South Pole, which divides the Earth into Northern and Southern Hemispheres, so the Northern Hemisphere being uh, the half of the Earth between the equator and the North Pole, and the Southern Hemisphere being the half between the equator and the Southern Pole. The distance around the equator, so the circumference of the Earth about the equator, is 40,075 kilometres compared to the distance from one pole to the other, which is 40,008 kilometres. So those might sound essentially the same, and they are essentially the same. So that's why we think of the Earth as a sphere, because it's pretty close to a sphere, but it's not quite a a sphere. In terms of the difference between polar and equatorial circumference, it's about 1%, roughly. So the Earth bulges slightly uh, around its middle, essentially. And that's what we mean when we call it an oblate spheroid, or an oblate ellipsoid, it's sometimes also called. Also, when we're describing the Earth uh, mathematically using this this geoid approximation, we talk about the shape of the Earth as if the entire Earth was covered by ocean. So we forget about all of the landmasses and mountains and so on, and just imagine that the Earth was covered completely by ocean. Average sea level, then, is what we model when we talk about the shape of the Earth, at least uh, to this level of abstraction. So, as you would hopefully know, and if not, go back to one of the previous episodes I recommended, 22 and 1 on on gravity, the Earth rotates about its axis, so it spins around its axis once every day. That's why we have day and night. And the axis about which the Earth rotates gives us the location of the poles. So essentially, the you can imagine the Earth as essentially a sphere. I'll often call it a sphere, even though you know it's not, because it's just easier. Imagine the Earth is a sphere, and you stick a long, straight well stick through it, a pole through it, through the centre, and then spin the Earth about this uh, this pole. Again, imagine a basketball on a stick, and you're spinning it around. You're spinning you're spinning the stick around. That that stick that goes through the middle of the sphere is the axis of rotation of the Earth. The Earth rotates about that axis once every day, and it goes through the North Pole and through the South Pole. So the Earth rotates about an axis that projects out the North and South Poles. And as I said before, the equator is uh, a line that intersects the surface of the, the Earth exactly midway between each of the two poles. So you could imagine drawing lines that are, say, closer up towards the South Pole or closer towards the North Pole. Those would also go around the Earth, but they wouldn't go around the equator because they wouldn't be equally distant between North and South Poles. Or to put it another way, if you imagine going around the Earth up near the North Pole, then it would be a much shorter distance than if I were to walk all the way around the Earth at the equator. Because I've got further to go around the equator because the 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 Earth is a sphere, right? It curves outward, and the the point uh, the, well, the line around which the distance that I would walk is maximal is around the equator. Understanding the poles and the equator is essential for understanding the concept of latitude and longitude. Latitude and longitude are two geographic coordinates that describe uniquely your location uh, on the planet Earth. Now there's another coordinate you could use which is elevation. Right, because if you want to describe your position in three-dimensional space, you need three coordinates. However, uh, here we're just thinking about the Earth in terms of the mean sea surface level approximation. So there's no elevation uh, according to this uh, metric. Everything's just on the surface of the Earth. So we're not concerned with elevation for this episode. We're just interested in latitude and longitude. And typically, these are the two that are used by uh, geographers in in map making and cartography. Cartography, by the way, is just the science of map making. In case you didn't know what that word meant. Now. Latitude and longitude, what's the difference between them? Latitude is a coordinate that specifies the north-south position, whereas longitude describes east-west position. That's the the simple, easiest way of understanding them. More specifically, latitude is an angle which ranges from 0 at the equator up to 90 degrees at the north or south poles. So latitude is defined as some number of degrees north or south, meaning towards the north or towards the south pole. So you can think of it as you start at the equator and then you rotate your angle up some direction either to the North Pole or to the South Pole and however many degrees you rotate, that's your that's your latitude. So if you're at the equator you don't have to rotate at all because well you're already there, so that's 0 degrees. If you're at the North Pole that's 90 degrees, you've rotated your angle all the way from pointing to the equator up to pointing to the North Pole, so that's a 90 degree angle and therefore you're 90 degrees North. Likewise South Pole, 90 degrees South. If you were halfway in between equator and the North Pole, you'd be at a latitude of 45 degrees north. Likewise, 45 degrees south if you were in the southern hemisphere. Lines of constant latitude are called parallels, and they run east to west as circles parallel to the equator. So this is what I was talking about before when I was talking about walking around the Earth at, ver- at different uh, distances from the pole. This is equivalent to walking around the Earth at different latitudes, or you know, flying around the Earth. Same thing. The idea is that parallels, that is, lines of constant latitude, uh, get longer as you move further away from the pole. The parallel right at the pole is, well, zero. Parallels get longer as you go further and further south until when you get to the equator, the parallel at the equator, which is just the equator, is a maximal distance, that 40,075 kilometres. So that's latitude. What about longitude? Longitude is a geographic coordinate that specifies your east-west position, as I said. It's also an angular measurement, so similar to latitude then it specifies an angle. But in this case, it doesn't specify an angle uh, rotating up or down, north or south, from the equator. But instead, it specifies an angle rotating either east or west of uh, some point on the Earth's surface. Now, in the case of latitude, we have an obvious... Parallel, which can serve as the zero point, namely the equator. It's the longest parallel, and it's the one equal distance between each of the poles. But what about in the case of longitude? Well, lines of uh, equal longitude—that is, if you imagine drawing a line from the north pole right to the south pole—that's a, a line of equal longitude. It's the same east-west position, just at different latitudes. These meridians, that there's no obvious one which can serve as the zero point because any meridian is equally long as every other. There's none that are equal distant from the poles or from the equator or anything like that, just because of the fact that meridians run, well, in a sense, parallel to the axis of rotation rather than perpendicular to it, that they don't exactly run parallel because they they circle around the Earth. But hopefully you get what I'm saying. Parallels form a... uh, You can draw a plane through a parallel which uh, intersects the axis of rotation of the Earth that goes through that plane, whereas you can't do that for a for a meridian. So for that reason, there's no obvious meridian to serve as the zero point. So one had to be chosen arbitrarily. And after some debate, mostly I understand between the French and the British, uh, the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England was chosen as the arbitrary prime meridian. That's where we say that the angle that we're measuring east and west from is at zero degrees. So it's sort of the analog of the equator, but for longitude in this, ta- in this case. Zero degrees runs through Greenwich, England. If you move east of that, you increase your angle. So that's said, that's said to be a plus or an eastward longitude. Or if you move westward, then the, your longitude angle decreases or it's said to be a westward uh, longitude. So because there are 360 degrees in a circle, that means that longitude ranges from 180 degrees eastward to minus 180 degrees westward. So those add up to a total of 360 degrees. So you can circle right around from 0 degrees at the prime meridian through to plus 180 degrees, and then plus 180 degrees maps straight into minus 180 degrees, obviously, because the world is circular, and so then you come back through the minuses and back through uh, up to 0 degrees. Now, you may be wondering at this point, why is it that longitude goes from uh, essentially... Plus or minus ninety degrees at the poles, whereas longitude goes to plus or minus one hundred and eighty degrees around uh, around east and west. Now the reason for that is because latitude only describes a angle or a position north to, north and south uh, between the equator and up to the pole. If you think about that, that maps out sort of one quarter of a circle. And there's one quarter going from North Pole down to the equator and another quarter going from the equator down to the South Pole. So that's one half of the the Earth's surface. Whereas longitude wraps around the entire world. So that's 360 degrees. So to put it another way, it would be redundant for uh, latitude to go out out to 180 degrees because, in fact, if you go at 91 degrees, uh, latitude is actually the same as 89 degrees latitude. If you just sort of try and visualize going up to one degree just before the pole and then one degree uh, across down from the pole, those are actually the same thing, so it would be redundant to have any more than 90 degrees, plus or minus 90 degree latitude. So I think that's enough about latitude, longitude and those other terms. I emphasise that because it is important to understand these, because I'll be talking a lot about them uh, in other parts of the episode. Now I just want to briefly talk about map projections, um, just to include this uh, important content. So A map is a two-dimensional representation of the surface of the Earth. Particularly, I'm talking about global maps at this point. And it's mathematically impossible to accurately represent uh, distance, shape, and size all at the same time on two dimensions when you're projecting from a a spherical or close to spherical three-dimensional shape. That's mathematically impossible to do, which means that every world map is inaccurate in some respect. Either it distorts shape, or it distorts distance between points, or it distorts area or it distorts some combination of the three note that this is true for all maps, however, maps of smaller areas are don't have as much distortion because a small section of a sphere is always uh, roughly f- roughly flat so you, the the curvature is not noticeable unless you get to a sort of large portion of the globe. But when you're trying to depict the entirety of the Earth, the problem becomes very severe. So every map projection has to make compromises and and trade-offs about what it's trying to represent and how it represents it. Some of the most common uh, methods of representing the Earth on a two-dimensional surface are called projections, because the original method of doing this was to literally project an image of the Earth uh, that is a, a spherical globe of the earth onto some sort of flat surface. And the different types of flat surfaces define the different types of projections. So, for example, you can have a conic projection, which is essentially imagine having, imagine that basketball again, which represents the earth, and you put like a really big ice cream cone sitting on top of it, or really you could put it anywhere on it. The fact that it's an ice cream cone is not important, just a, a, a conical shape that sort of sits on top of it. That is a conical projection. Essentially, what it does is you project the Uh, spherical surface of the Earth onto that cone. So obviously when the cone is directly lying against the curvature of the Earth, that's going to be most accurate there because essentially the projection distortions are going to be smallest. However, as the straight surface of the cone moves further and further away from the curved surface of the basketball, um, you'll have more and more distortion. That is, more and more difference between what the two-dimensional map shows and what the three-dimensional surface of the Earth actually is. So these the conical projections can be useful for projecting mid-latitudes because the, the place of the least distortion tends to, be, uh, tends to be neither on the equator nor at the pole, but somewhere in between just because of the way a cone sits on a sphere. Just try and visualize that and you'll see what I mean. Another type of projection, which is probably the most commonly seen type of projection still to this day, unfortunately, although it's not as bad as it used to be, is a cylindrical projection, which is essentially just placing a big c- cylinder around uh around a sphere, usually around the equator. And so this projects... If if, Again, you visualize where does a cylinder touch the sphere? It touches it on the equator, and it gets further and further away from it as you move towards the poles. So this means that the equator, or the equatorial regions, will be the most accurately represented on a cylindrical projection, and the poles will be the least accurately represented. So these cylindrical projections are useful for depicting uh depicting the equatorial regions, but pretty much useless for depicting the uh polar regions. The most famous cylindrical projection is called the Mercator projection, and it's probably the single map projection that you're most familiar with, because they have been, as I said, a little bit, n- not as much now as maybe a few decades ago, but still to a large extent, used for wall maps and in atlases and so on, particularly in schools and other places like that. The Mercator projection and, and similar sorts of um, uh, cylindrical projections are very useful, and one of the reasons that they're so widely seen is because they were used for centuries by navigators. Because on a Mercator projection, latitude uh, lines of constant latitude and lines of constant longitude, that is, meridians and parallels, appear as straight lines, whereas on on most other map projections, that's not the case. And having Meridians and parallels appear as straight lines Makes it really convenient for navigation Obviously, Because you just decide on a bearing and, and follow that and you can mark it as a straight line along a map So very useful for um, Ship based navigation So that's why it was typically used But it's not accurate as in terms of representing Regions as they're closer and closer to the pole And this is a particular concern for the northern hemisphere Because there's much more uh, land In the northern hemisphere near the pole region So the southern hemisphere is pretty accurately represented Except for Antarctica but the northern hemisphere, particularly the more northerly regions, are hopelessly inaccurately represented. Actually, it does shape correctly. Mercator projection preserves shape quite well, but area is um, dramatically inflated near the polar regions. So particularly Greenland is the most obvious example of this on a Mercator projection. If you just look at a Mercator projection, Greenland looks bigger than Africa, whereas in fact, Greenland is like less than one-tenth the size of Africa, I think. It's way, way smaller than Africa. That's because uh, the polar regions are, are grossly distorted in terms of the area. They look much larger than they should be. And if you actually look at most Mercator projections or similar ones are clipped at uh, near the poles because of this extreme distortion when you get near the poles. They actually chop them off uh, near, the, near, the, near the top and the bottom. And actually, I, I think it's a bit misleading the way this is done, because typically the uh, latitudes where they chop them off is different in the north and in the southern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, they typically chop them off just a, somewhere around 65 degrees south, which is around where you just see Antarctica poking out, 65 to 70 degrees south. So you, you'll see just a little bit of the coast of Antarctica down the south of, of many of these Mercator projections, but most of the rest of Antarctica is just cut off the map. If you actually look at a full Mercator projection, or a closer to full one, you'll see that the total size of the area of Antarctica on a Mercator projection, if you're allowed to see the whole of it and they don't chop it off, uh, is actually about the same size as the total land mass area of the entire rest of the world. That is, the area of Antarctica on a Mercator projection, when they don't cut it off, is so grossly distorted that actually swamps the rest of the... Like, half of the map is Antarctica, basically. Um, or it, it looks like it's it's half of the map. And and that's why it's typically cut off, just because it's so distorting, it looks ridiculous. And Antarctica's not nearly that large in, in, in reality, but because it essentially sits right over the South Pole and the polar regions are the most distorted, it, its its area is just dramatically distorted by a full Mercator projection. But the point I was making before is that they typically cut off the Mercator projection around latitude 70-ish degrees south. But up in the north, if you cut, if you were to cut off at the same latitude, you'd be cutting just north of Iceland, and yet you'd actually cut off the very northern parts of, of Canada, uh, half of Greenland would be missing, you'd, you'd cut off the northern parts of Siberia, and so that would remove areas of the Earth that people are typically interested in more so at least than Antarctica. So they typically cut Mercator projections much further north, somewhere around 85 degrees north, which is much, as I said, much closer to the pole than in the south. So they're actually lopsided, in a sense, many of the Mercator projections that you see. Those that don't show a grossly distorted Antarctica are generally going to be lopsided in that. They've actually cut off more of the southern hemisphere than the northern hemisphere. And I think that while this might be very useful for navigation, especially in the past, it's a very misleading way of portraying the Earth, and that's actually why the National Geographic Society and other uh, geography societies like that strongly recommend against uh, wall maps and, and uh, uh, geographic atlases displaying the world as uh, a, on a rectangular map, because the world isn't rectangular, it's, it's spherical, and so a, a proper map should show at least some curvature there. So the Mercator projection, for that reason, is, is quite inaccurate, because of this need to cut off the north and south poles and the tendency to do that differentially in the north and south hemisphere. It leads to a lot of... um misperceptions about the relative sizes of of parts of the world. So that's some knowledge about the Mercator projection that might be useful to you next time you you go around looking at maps. The Mercator projection, as I said, is a type of cylindrical projection, so it distorts the poles most uh, severely. In some sense, the opposite of the uh, cylindrical projection is uh, an azimuthal or a plane projection, which is, instead of placing a a cylinder around the equator, uh, it's kind of like uh, the plane or azimuthal projection is like putting a a dish or essentially a um, it's a two dimensional uh, circle at some point on the surface of the earth, often at the pole although it doesn't doesn't have to be at the pole, but if you imagine putting it at the pole then this uh, this little circle that you 've put on the top of the earth meets the sphere at the pole and then increasingly diverges from the cur- as the the sphere curves away as you move further away from the pole so these these types of planar projections. Uh, represent the pole most accurately, and as you move further and further away from the pole towards the equator, the distortions increase there. So these sort of azimuthal projections are particularly useful for depicting the poles. Uh, Better world maps, if they use a a cylindrical projection like the Mercator, or even something somewhat like that, which tends to represent mid-latitudes and equatorial regions more accurately, but distort the poles, good maps will also include planar projections of the north and south polar regions so that you can get a more accurate view as to what those look like. So those are three of the major projections that are used. There are many others as well and uh, these days cartographers aren't limited to actually physically projecting the light from spheres to two-dimensional shapes because they use computers to do this and so they've come up with all of these very complex uh, mappings and and ways ways of representing the Earth. Another type of projection that might be useful to know about is an interrupted projection. This is essentially where you try to represent the earth by literally unfolding the sphere and then flattening it out. And if you do that, what you'll see is that there are blank spaces. So it won't be nice. It won't be a nice, uh, circle or a rectangle. It'll be sort of blobby and patchy and, uh, Generally, the way this is done is that they sort of cut it so that, that these missing patches are over the oceans, not over the continents. This helps preserve the the, the shape and size more accurately, but but it does lead to a sort of a funny-looking map, and that they don't. I don't think they look as aesthetically pleasing because you, you've got all these big white areas sort of in the middle of the Earth like that. But that's the price you pay for trying to represent three dimensions in, into two. I can't help mentioning my personal favorite projection which is the Robinson projection which I think is if you're going to use one of these is uh for projecting representing the whole earth uh is is one of the best to go with the National Geographic Society used to use this but they they've since switched to a, a slightly different one the Robinson Robinson projection's uh, unique because most of these map projections they start off with sort of a mathematical formalism or that is a, a mathematical transformation to represent three dimensions to two, and then they carry that out and see what it looks like. Whereas what Robinson did is he essentially said, well, I'm going to figure out what looks good and then reverse engineer and figure out what transformation will produce that. That is, he uh, fiddled around with the parameters of, of, his, of his projection, so that he got what he thought was the right balance between distortion of shape at the poles and distortion of area and uh, accuracy of relative distance and things like that. So he sort of balanced all those out, so that it it achieved what what he thought was an aesthetically pleasing um, balance. And I, I think actually it's it's a really good uh, a really good balance. So it, it's particularly instructive to compare, say, a Mercator projection to a Robinson projection and see how they differ. So anyway, that's enough about uh, cartography and map projections, now I need to get on to talk about the seasons, which is uh, sort of the reason we, we set up all of this uh, discussion about maps and, and longitude and latitude and stuff like that, so I can talk about the seasons. So before we get on to the reason for the season, we need to talk about what, what is a season. Now, most people have a fairly intuitive idea about what a season is. It's just a division of the year that's marked by changes in the weather and daylight, uh, ecology, and so on. You know, trees will lose their leaves or gain their leaves, or you'll have bushfires during parts of the year, or the temperatures will be hotter, or birds will migrate, stuff like that. These define the seasons. Now, in most places, there aren't uh, formally defined seasonal boundaries. In mid-latitude regions, typically there are four seasons a year, summer, winter, autumn, or fall in the US, and spring, In the Northern Hemisphere, summer is generally defined to be the months that are the hottest, so those will be during June, July, and August, whereas in the Southern Hemisphere, those are actually the coolest months, so those are winter. So the, the, the seasons are swapped between the hemispheres. Summer in the Northern Hemisphere is winter in the Southern Hemisphere, and likewise autumn in the Northern Hemisphere, or fall, is spring in the Southern Hemisphere. But that's only really relevant to the mid-latitude regions, which is where, uh, I'd say, most of the world's population lives. But at the equator, um, the four seasons isn't really a relevant model because, if you recall from the previous episode uh, on on world geography, in in the equatorial regions, it's pretty much uh, hot and wet all year long. So in the the equatorial regions, really, there are only two seasons, Uh, basically the wet and the dry season, or or in, in some places, the wet and the somewhat less wet seasons. The reason for this essentially is because there's a a rain belt which can be thought of as existing roughly along the equator, but it doesn't sit exactly over the equator. It moves uh, over the course of the year to the north and then across the equator back to the south and and then back again. So when the rains move up into the northern hemisphere, that occurs roughly over the period of northern summer, but it also extends sort of a few months either way. So the tropical rain belt then moves back into the southern hemisphere, where it sits for roughly around the southern summer, plus or minus a couple of months, so October to March, and then back up to the north, April to September, and then back over again. So if the rain belt's over where you are, that's going to be the wet season, and if it isn't, then that's going to be the dry season. So this is a more relevant seasonal variation for tropical regions. So why do we have seasons? Why is it that during part of the year... We have relatively warm weather in summer, say, and in the other part, we have relatively cool weather or downright cold weather, depending on where you live, in winter. What's up with that? Now, naively, I think a lot of people reason that in summer, we're closer, the Earth is closer to the sun, and in winter, uh, the Earth is further away from the sun. Now, this turns out to not be the case, or in other words, this isn't the reason for why the seasons exist. But if you think about it, it actually can't be the reason. And uh, that's because when it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, it's winter in the Southern Hemisphere. So suppose during the summer in the Northern Hemisphere, the Earth was a lot closer to the sun, and that's not the case. But just suppose it were the case. If the Northern Hemisphere is hot that is, it's summer there because it's closer to the sun, then that must also be true for the Southern Hemisphere as well, because if the Northern Hemisphere is closer to the sun, the Southern Hemisphere is closer to the sun as well, and that they kind of go together. And that would seem to imply that when it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, it should also be summer in the Southern Hemisphere, and then when when the Earth moves further away from the sun, then it would be winter in the Northern and Southern Hemispheres. But that's not how it works. When it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, it's winter in the Southern Hemisphere. So that doesn't make any sense at all, it can't be the case that seasons are primarily the results of distance of the Earth to the Sun, because then this then seasons would be the same in northern and southern hemisphere, but they're opposite. So what's going on here? It it, it clearly can't be distance from the Earth, a distance from the Earth to the Sun. In fact, the main reason for seasons, globally speaking, is the axial tilt of the Earth. So let's explain this a little bit. So we know that the Earth rotates about the Sun once every year, and the Earth also rotates about its axis once every day. The plane of the Earth's orbit about the Sun is called the ecliptic, and the plane perpendicular to the rotation of Earth's axis is the equatorial plane. The axial tilt is the angle between the two of them. So in other words, you may not have known this, but the Earth the uh, plane about which the Earth rotates every day is not the same as the plane about which the Earth orbits the Sun. There's an angle between them. In fact, in general, there's no reason you would expect them to be the same, Uh, and in the case of some planets, they're quite similar. In the case of the Earth, they differ by about 23 degrees. In fact, you can't give a precise number because the axial tilt actually fluctuates within a margin of about 2 degrees over a 40,000-year period, and that's due to tidal forces of the Moon. So not only is the Earth... Uh, the Earth's axis of rotation tilted relative to its orbit about the Sun, but that tilt sort of wobbles a little bit over uh, thousands of years. But but coming back to the Sun and the Earth, this 20th, roughly twenty-three degree angle uh, is between the ecliptic and uh, the the plane of the equatorial plane it is called the axial tilt of the Earth, and it is the main reason why seasons exist on Earth. So to understand how this works, you, you need to visualise the Earth as it rotates about the Sun. So think about that basketball on a pole again with the the pole extending through the axis of rotation of the earth and now imagine that that pole is sticking straight up and down and we then orbit that uh, we take hold of the pole and and, and orbit it about uh, the, the center uh, the center of a big circle which is uh, the, the Sun so the pole is up and down perpendicular to, uh, to to the plane of orbit around the Sun this would be the case or this would be a description of the earth about the Sun if there was no angle between the ecliptic and the equatorial plane, that is, if the Earth had zero axial tilt. In fact, that's not the case, obviously. We know that there's 23 degrees of axial tilt. So what we need to do is take our pole that sticks through the Earth and rotate it a little bit, about one quarter of the way towards full horizontal. So we tilt it a little bit and then orbit it, and then keep sort of moving it, circling around the center, of the, which is the Sun. So we've got this slightly diagonal pole that's sort of sticking through the Earth and now rotating around around the Sun. The Earth, meanwhile, is rotating about this pole, so the axis about it which is rotating is not the same as the axis about which it is orbiting the Sun. Now, the single most important thing to realize is that because of this axial tilt, effectively, at any given time, one of the hemispheres is pointing relatively more towards the sun, while the, the other hemisphere is pointing more away from the sun. So think about it this way. If there was, if the axial tilt was zero, then that, that pole about which the Earth rotates is sticking right up and down. The north pole, polar region, sorry, and the arctic and the south polar region, so around Antarctica, are both pointing uh, sort of facing perpendicularly away uh, from our plane of uh, rotation about the sun. Now, that means when the sunlight comes in, obviously the sunlight is coming in straight, so the sunlight comes in parallel to the plane of our orbit about the sun. The sunlight is not going to hit either the north or the south pole, because for it to hit the, the north or the south pole, it would have to come vertically downwards, right? But the sun, the, the sunlight doesn't come from there, it comes sideways, so if that were the case, if there was no axial tilt, effectively the North and South Pole would basically never receive any light. They'd never be able to see the Sun. Now that's not strictly true because there's also the Earth's atmosphere to take into account, and that uh scatters the light a bit. But we're imagining the Earth didn't have an atmosphere, and we're imagining it's perfectly sphere and other simplifications to to get the main point across. But if that were the case, and if there was no axial tilt... In fact, there would be a perfect, uh, relationship between how far away from the equator you were and the amount of sunlight that you got. Obviously during the daytime, we don't get sunlight during, during the nighttime. But so at the equator, you'll get, you'll get the maximal amount of, uh, sunlight, which is called solar insulation, because the sunlight's coming right directly and hitting, uh, and hitting you face on. Whereas up at the poles, the sunlight's not hitting you at all. It's sort of skimming right across you, right past you, and you're missing it halfway sort of between the poles and the equator, you'll get some sunlight, but you won't get as much because the Earth curves away from those rays of sun as they're coming in. And so the sunlight's going to be spread over a wider area. And that will increase. That is the area that the sun incoming sunlight is spread over increases as you move towards the pole until at the pole itself, the, the sunlight's coming in right parallel to the surface of the Earth there, and you get no sunlight whatever. And so you never see the sun. This... I emphasize, would be the situation if there was no axial tilt. You'd get maximum solar insulation at the equator and progressively less as you move towards the poles, at which point you would get exactly none. But what happens when the Earth does have an axial tilt? Well, in that case, one of the hemispheres, let's say it's the southern hemisphere at this point, will point somewhat towards the Sun, not completely towards the Sun, that would only happen if the axial tilt was 90 degrees, then the pole would point directly toward the Sun, and it would be the equator that wouldn't get any sunlight. But that's an extreme case. If there's only a little bit of axial tilt, you know, 23 degrees, then the South Pole would point somewhat towards the Sun, while the North Pole would point somewhat away from the Sun. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that the the southern pole would now get more light or more solar insulation than than it did before because it's relatively towards facing the sun. So it's getting more of those, well, before it didn't get any, and regions right near the pole barely got any, and now the pole's getting some, and regions that are just near the pole are getting more than they did before. To get the maximum out, it'd have to rotate all the way up to uh, 90 degrees so it was directly facing the incoming sun rays. Of course, it it doesn't go that far, but it goes somewhat of the way there. What what happens to the North Pole? Well, the North Pole before was uh, directly perpendicular to those incoming sun rays. And so exactly at the North Pole, you got no sunlight at all. But just a little bit away from it, you got uh, barely any, but sl- a tiny amount of sunlight because it was spread over such a, such a wide area. Now, however, the North Pole as a whole is pointing away from the sun. So not only does the North Pole, exactly at the North Pole, get no sunlight, but even some distance around the North Pole doesn't get any sunlight either. And exactly uh, what that distance is, we'll talk about in a moment, but it depends on the axial tilt. Another thing that's happened as a result of this axial tilt is that the Place of the Earth's surface that gets maximal solar insulation, that gets the most sunlight per unit area, is no longer exactly on the equator because there's been a tilt. There's been a relative rotation. So in fact, it's some place. Uh, if we can, if we keep with our analogy of the or our case of the southern hemisphere pointing towards the sun, it will be some region. Uh, just a little bit somewhere below the equator in the southern hemisphere, which will actually be directly directly facing uh, the incoming solar rays. And so that region, not the equator itself, will receive maximal solar insulation. Now, so far I've been imagining as if the Earth was just... Uh, sitting still and the sun was, was shining on it according to its axial tilt. But of course, the earth's rotating about its axis. So how does that affect the situation that I'm describing? Well, that rotation about its axis is going to bring, uh, one half of the earth facing the sun, you know, one half the day and then the other half facing the other half of the day. So you're going to have a continual rotation around there. And so the, what's called the, the, the terminator, so the, the region, the, the demarcation between day and night, which in our hypothetical example is, is, a, a clearly defined line because we're imagining there's no atmosphere and, and other complicating factors which, which blur it. Um, but the the, the the Terminator is uh, going to continually move across the Earth as, as the Earth rotates. However, what it won't do is, in this situation where the South Pole is, is facing towards the Sun, the Terminator will never actually cross over the South Pole. It might take a moment to realise why this is the case, but again, imagine our sphere with the pole pointing straight up and down, that's the zero-axial tilt case. Now imagine tilting the axis so that the the southern uh, pole points uh, somewhat towards the Sun. And now imagine the Sun is shining its light rays on the Earth. What part of the Earth is illuminated uh, by those light rays? It's going to be exactly the half of the Earth, as seen from the Sun, uh, that the Sun can see. And then now imagine rotating that Earth about the, the pole that's sticking through our, our basketball. If you do that, and hopefully you, you can visualize what I'm saying here, you'll notice that although for most of the Earth's regions, uh, it'll, they'll pass out into the illuminated region, then out of it as they, as they rotate around and then back again, some region around the South Pole will always be facing towards, uh, towards the sun, and so will always be in daylight. And conversely, some region around the North Pole will always be facing away from the sun, and thus will always be experiencing nighttime. And how big that region is, again, depends on the axial tilt. If the axial tilt was maximal, so that it was 90 degrees, and this pole now faces directly towards and away from the sun, then what you would have is uh, the entire southern hemisphere would would constantly point towards the sun, and therefore would always be in daylight, whereas the entire northern hemisphere would constantly point away from the sun, and therefore would always be in nighttime. And the Earth would rotate around, but it, it wouldn't make any difference as to which part was was illuminated because the rotation would, would not bring any new part of the Earth to facing the Sun. But that's the extreme case. Uh, in in the moderate case, where there's only 23 degrees of axial tilt, there's only a, a relatively small region around the Southern Pole and the Northern Pole that experiences these periods of all night and, and all, all, all daytime. Okay, but what does all this have to do with the seasons, you might be wondering? Well... This has all been necessary set-up to explain why we have seasons, because so far I've just been imagining a case where the Southern Hemisphere is always pointing towards the the Sun, but that is not what happens. What actually happens is that the Earth is constantly rotating about the Sun. The axis of Earth's rotation, however, is always pointing in the same direction it doesn't rotate around the sun with the the Earth, so if it did, the Earth would be what's called tidally locked to the sun that's that's the way the 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 moon is to the earth. The same side of the moon always faces the Earth, so its axis of rotation effectively is um is is locked with respect to with some um, how it faces the earth but that's not the case with the Earth and the sun the, that pole always points in the same direction the, the pole about which the, the earth rotates. Whereas its, ro- its orbit about the sun continually changes the earth's relative position to the sun. So if at one time of the year, say when, imagine, imagine again our situation where the sun's at the center and the earth is on the left. And we've got that pole that's sticking relatively towards the sun in the southern hemisphere. Now imagine rotating that earth and pulling it around the circle so that it's now sitting on the other side, the right hand side of the sun. Now, which direction is that pole going to be facing? The pole's going to be facing towards the sun in the northern hemisphere because it, it's sloping diagonally down from the top left to the bottom right. And it, it was on the, it was when, um, it started and it still is. It doesn't change direction. But now because it's on the other side of the sun, the northern hemisphere is going to be, or the, the northern pole, polar region specifically is going to be facing relatively towards the sun, whereas the southern region is going to be facing away. So you've, you've had an inversion, whereas previously the southern pole was always in the sunlight. Now, the northern pole is always in the sunlight, and the southern pole doesn't experience uh, any sunlight during that time of year. So those are the two extremes, when the North Pole is facing away and when the North Pole is facing towards the Sun. What about halfway in between? So in that case we can imagine, uh, remember in the first case, the, the Earth was on the left-hand side of the Sun. In the second case, it was on the right-hand side. Now, but what if it was halfway in between so that if you imagine the Sun is in the middle, the Earth is between the Sun and us, and then we're looking at it from, from face on? What about in that situation? Well, in that situation, uh, remember, we've still got the, the pole that sticks through the Earth, that is the axis of, of rotation, still goes from the top left to the bottom right. It still points in the same direction. It always points in the same direction, conservation of angular momentum. So in that case, the earth, the Earth is rotating about that axis, but the axis itself doesn't rotate. Uh, so in that circumstance, what we actually have is neither the North Pole nor the South Pole is pointing towards the Sun. In fact, both are sort of pointing sideways relative to the Sun. Ho- hopefully you're following me in my visualization here. That the axis of the Earth's rotation... Instead of pointing more or less in the same direction as the the Sun's rays, as it did in the left-hand or the right-hand case, it's now completely perpendicular to the direction of the Sun's rays, which are coming into and out of the picture, that is, towards us, whereas the, the axis of Earth's rotation is, is, is diagonal from top left to bottom right. So in this case, neither the North Pole nor the South Pole uh, is pointing towards the Sun. In fact, no part of the Earth is pointing relatively towards the Sun. In this situation, all of the Earth experiences... Uh, exactly 12 hours of, of daylight. So there's no region that is there's no region of the Earth that's always in sunlight, and no region of the Earth uh, that never has sunlight. So this situation corresponds to the equinoxes. During the equinoxes, neither the North Pole nor the South Pole is pointing towards the Sun. All regions of the Earth on the exact day of the equinox experience exactly 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night, because essentially in the, in that situation the 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 terminus, the demarcation between night and day, runs directly along from the North Pole to the South Pole, and so therefore there's no tilting of of the terminus uh, one way or the other, or in other words, no biasing of the North or the Southern Hemisphere. So each gets exactly 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night, regardless of what your latitude is. The two cases that I started off with, remember when the Earth is on the left and the southern hemisphere points towards the sun, and when the Earth was on the right and the northern hemisphere points towards the sun, those cases correspond to the solstices. That is, days of the year when you either have the longest day, that is the most sunlight, or the shortest day, the shortest sunlight. When the southern hemisphere points towards the sun, that's the southern summer solstice, because their days are longer, they're getting more sunlight because their hemisphere is pointed relatively towards the sun. The further towards the south pole you are, the longer your days become until you reach that region that uh, where the sun never sets and therefore um, you, you have maximal day length at that time. Whereas at that time in the northern hemisphere, the, nor- the north pole is pointing away from the sun Therefore, the days are shorter the further north you go until you reach that region around the North Pole where, in fact, you have maximally short days. That is, you don't have any sunlight because that region is never illuminated. And the exact reverse happens when, when six months later, the Earth is on the other side of its orbit. Now the Northern Hemisphere is experiencing its summer solstice because it's pointing relatively towards the Sun and its days are longer and uh, vice versa for the Southern Hemisphere pointing away. Now, these regions that I talked about that experience periods of complete darkness, that is no light uh, during winter, and 24 hours of complete sunlight uh, during summer. These correspond to the Arctic and the Antarctic circles, obviously the Arctic up north and the Antarctic down south. And they're located around 66 degrees latitude, so that's about two-thirds of the way, uh, roughly, from uh, the, the equator up to the north pole in terms of angular angular distance the the arctic circle is is located just sort of uh, it it cu- it cuts across the northern region of canada uh, across through greenland just north of iceland uh, and just at the very northern tip of scandinavia and and across uh, northern siberia this the antarctic circle basically just circles right around antarctica so antarctica it, it sort of marks out the boundaries of antarctica loosely speaking so These regions mark out the areas of Earth where at least some of the time during the year there are days either of no sun or of uh, no setting sun. That is, uh, when the sun never sets during summer or when the sun never rises during winter. If you're right on the, let's say, Antarctic circle, right down south, right on there, then the only day when you'll experience the, the, um, when you'll experience the full extent of that, that is say the 24 hours of sunlight, is on the solstice itself, right on the summer solstice. On the summer solstice, right on the Antarctic Circle, at that latitude, regardless of your longitude, at that latitude you'll experience 24 hours of sunlight. Vice versa, during winter, uh, uh, and on the Antarctic Circle, on the winter solstice, you'll experience no sunlight. The sun won't rise on that day, because it won't ever clear the horizon, because you're um, you're located on a part of the Earth that's pointed away from the sun. So right on the circle, it's only one day of the year, the the solstice. As you move further towards the pole, more and more days of the year um, will be like that until you get to the pole itself, which experiences six months of sun and then six months of night, essentially. So its days right at the pole are six months long. Again, this is an ideal case where there's no atmosphere. In In the real world, it's going to be a little bit more complicated than that because you can you can see the sun even if it's not quite clear the horizon because of the bending effects of the atmosphere and so on. I'm not going to go into all those details here. Um, I'm just trying to emphasize uh, the, how axial tilt affects the seasons. So in an ideal case, the pole is either facing towards the sun, in which case it always receives sunlight regardless of the rotation of the Earth's axis, or it's always facing away from the sun, in which case it never receives the sunlight. And if you think about it this way, the Earth is rotating about its axis, which extends from the North Pole to the south pole that means uh the further away from the pole you are, the more the the greater your velocity is as you as as that part of the Earth spins around at the pole itself. there's actually no velocity the the pole isn't orbiting about itself because the the pole is at the place where the the orbit is centered so Unlike the, unlike other places on the earth where the rotation of the earth causes you to move into and out of the region of sunlight, that doesn't happen at the poles. You're either in the region of sunlight or you're out of it. The rotation of the earth isn't, isn't going to help you there because you're, you're right where it is. So at the poles, winter is the same thing as night and summer is the same thing as day. Uh, that is the summer is six months long as is the day. The winter is six months long as is, uh, the night. As you move further away from there, you get uh, more and more balanced days and nights until when you're at the equator, you've got the most balance. So that's the Arctic and Antarctic circles. That's why those are important. Those are the places where, right on the solstices, you get either no sun or 24-hour sun, uh, depending on whether it's winter or summer. What about the equator? Well, the the equator is the place where you get maximal sunlight. Actually, not at the solstices, remember, because at the solstices you've got uh, a relative tilt, Where do you get maximal sunlight at the solstices? I said it was either somewhere to the north or to the south of the equator, again, depending on the season, whether it's winter or summer. But um, in the southern hemisphere, there's a latitude called the Tropic of Capricorn, which is about 23 degrees south of the equator, so sort of a a third of the way towards the pole, very roughly speaking. In the northern hemisphere, there's something called the Tropic of Cancer, which is, again, about a third of the way up towards the north pole. The Tropic of Cancer marks out the latitude where the Sun is directly overhead at the summer solstice, that is the summer solstice in the southern hemisphere, because it's at this region, this uh, latitude around the Earth, that the Sun is directly overhead. It's not directly overhead of the equator, because the equator is actually tilted a little bit away from from the Sun, or a little bit relative to the Sun at this time of year. Vice versa, if you uh, move six months ahead, the Tropic of cancer will be in the northern hemisphere will be the place where the sun is directly overhead when the um, when there's a summer solstice there or when there's a winter solstice in the in the southern hemisphere. Of course, when I say the sun is directly overhead, the sun obviously moves across the sky over the course of the day as the earth rotates so I'm talking about at noon where is the sun? You may have been told that the sun is always directly overhead at noon, but that's not correct that's only true at one particular latitude of the earth. At any, on any particular day. So that is, at, on the summer solstice, the sun is only ever directly overhead at noon along the Tropic of Cancer in the summer solstice in the Northern Hemisphere. And the summer solstice in the Southern Hemisphere, the sun is only ever directly overhead, meaning 90 degrees from all of the horizons, smack bang, right over the top of you. If you look sort of straight upwards, that's what I mean by directly overhead. The, the sun is, over direct, is only directly overhead in the southern hemisphere during the summer solstice along the tropic of capricorn on on the day of the summer solstice what about at the equator when is the sun overhead at the equator the sun is overhead at the equator at the equinoxes so that's remember the time when the earth when neither the south pole nor the north pole is facing the earth but the earth is halfway in between those extremes so that our axis of rotation is uh, from the top left to the bottom right is uh, perpendicular to the direction that the the sun is coming, which is towards us, we're imagining. On that day, the equator is neither tilted away nor towards the sun, and so the equator itself is the region or the area of latitude which will experience uh, the sun directly overhead at noon on that day. So these regions, the Tropic of Cancer up to the north, down to the equator, and then down to the Tropic of Capricorn down in the south, these are called the tropics. And it's these regions that I talked about in the previous episode when I, where the rainforests are found and also the, the savannah regions are mostly found. These are hotter regions because they receive more solar insulation because of the fact uh, that they're close to the equator. They also have less seasonal variation compared to the north and the south poles because there's not much difference between the winter and summer near the equator because winter and summer... Uh, the difference between them is defined by whether you're tilted away or towards the sun. The closer you are to the poles, the more extreme the difference will be until when you're at the pole, you get maximal uh, extreme difference of seasons when either you have 20, you, you have six months of sunlight or six months of night time. So that's an extreme difference in seasons. That's about as much as you can get. At the equator itself, there's very little difference between the seasons because all you have essentially is a very slight Fluctuation of of the uh, the total solar insulation as you as you move from season one season to the next, but there, there, there's not much of a change. Pretty much all of the time, you're getting close to twelve hours of daylight, and uh, pretty much all the time, you're getting nearly uh, the maximal amount of of solar um, insulation. Because even in winter, you're you're still pointed pretty close toward that the sun rays still come nearly directly face onto you, or in other words, at noon the sun is nearly overhead. So there's not much variation in the seasons around the equator, around the equatorial regions, except, as I mentioned, uh, the difference between the wet season and the dry season as the rain band uh, moves up and down uh, during the seasons. As you move further away from the equator, the the seasonal variations become more extreme. So a very crude way of thinking about this is to imagine that that the seasons are caused by the difference between how much sunlight or solar insulation your latitude – is expecting to get versus how much it actually does get, and the difference, of course, caused by the axial tilt. If there was no axial tilt, then the polar regions would receive essentially no sunlight at all as they rotated about the sun. It wouldn't make any difference that the sunlight always sort of just just passes them by. Whereas the equatorial regions would receive maximal sunlight, and the mid-latitude regions would receive somewhere in between. Just that the further away from the equator you were, the less sunlight that uh, you would. would receive. Again, uh, I should note that I'm ignoring the effects of cloud cover here, which complicate the picture. We'll get to that later, but here we're just talking about purely in terms of the the curvature of the Earth away from from those incoming incoming solar rays. And if that was the case, you would also have no seasonal variation. There was no axial tilt. However, because of the axial tilt, during uh, the southern summer, the southern polar regions and areas surrounding them, in fact the entire southern hemisphere, but especially the polar regions, get sort of more than expected amount of sun because of that tilt towards the Sun. Whereas the Northern Hemisphere gets less than expected, and progressively more extreme as you get towards the pole. Vice versa, obviously, during the Northern Summer, where it gets more sunlight than expected, and the Southern Hemisphere gets less. So because of this seasonal variation across different parts of the year, as the Earth moves about around the Sun in its orbit, there are differential uh, amounts of sunlight that regions of the Earth are receiving, and therefore different temperatures there's actually a lag between what's um, what's called seasonal lag between when an area receives the most amount of sunlight and when that area actually reaches uh, maximum temperatures. So, for example, if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, you receive the most amount of uh, solar radiation on the summer solstice when the Southern Hemisphere is uh, most pointed towards the sun. And that happens uh, around uh, near the end of December. However, the hottest months in the southern hemisphere, at least in mid-latitude regions, are generally in... January or sometimes even February, there's a lag of around six or so weeks between when you get the most solar radiation and when you actually reach the highest temperatures. And that's essentially because the Earth takes a while to heat up and cool down, especially because of the oceans. The oceans suck up a lot of heat during summer and then slowly release that heat during winter. So that delays uh, the the, the period as well. I'll talk more about that in future episodes about the uh, mediating and moderating effects of, of water. Uh, but it's important to understand that seasonal lag, and that's sometimes where you get variations in the definition of summer and winter. Do you do you define them by when you get uh, maximum solar insulation, or do you define them when you get highest temperatures? Because there'll basically be a month, uh, there'll be a one month shift in the, the later direction towards the, the end of the year um, if you define it by temperatures because of that seasonal lag effect. One final point that I want to discuss is sun paths. That is, what, what paths does the sun Progress across as it passes over, overhead. Now that varies depending on two factors. It, it, um, it varies depending on your latitude and it varies depending on the time of year. Now the simplest case, which is perhaps what you'd been taught or imagined is when you live on the equator. When you live on the equator, on the, on the days of the equinox, the sun rises directly in, the, in the east and passes right overhead at noon and then sets exactly in the west. Very simple case. But that only happens at the equator, and it only happens uh, on the equinoxes. So for the rest of the world and for the rest of the time of year, uh, it's a bit more complicated than that. So what happens at the equator during other times of year? Well, at the equator away from equinoxes, say at the solstices, as you move away from the equinoxes towards the solstices, the sun gradually moves either towards the uh, south or towards the north in terms of where it rises and sets. And it, it it does so as sort of a fractional degree every day, so that during the southern summer solstice, the sun actually rises at the equator 23 degrees south of east, and passes uh, in in a straight line over doesn't never goes directly overhead, and then sets also 23 degrees south of west. So that 23 degrees roughly is uh, is the axial tilt. So as you get closer to the equinoxes, the the Sun gets closer towards rising in the east and setting in the west. Whereas as you get closer to the solstices, it moves either towards the south or towards the north. Now that's at the equator. The picture is similar at mid-latitudes, but it's a bit more complicated. So we'll we'll jump straight from the equator up to the poles, because the equators and the poles are the easiest to visualise. Whereas at the equator, the sun rises in the east, goes directly overhead and sets in the west. At the equinoxes, at the other times of year, it's, it's a little bit shifted to the south or the north of that, but the path is essentially the same. It passes overhead and, and, and sets on the other side of the sky. At the poles, the sun actually doesn't pass overhead at all. It circles around the sky. And basically, there are only two cases. Either you can see the sun, in which case it's circling around the sky, So it will pass from west to south to east to north and then back again and never crosses the horizon. When you can see the sun, that's obviously during summertime when you're pointed towards the sun, the sun over the course of the year gets higher and higher in the sky as you approach the solstices until it's highest in the sky on the solstices, but it's never directly overhead it's only some degree over the horizon, but the the angle above the horizon that it reaches is highest on the solstices. Then as you move away from the solstices back towards the equinoxes, the sun progressively gets closer and closer to the horizon, still circling around, never, never going overhead and never setting as it does um, at the equator, but its it, it circle constantly it gets closer and closer to the horizon until right on the equinoxes it, it touches the horizon. And uh, again, in a, in a hypothetical case with no atmosphere and everything else, exactly on the equinox, the sun actually passes directly along the horizon. And then after the equinoxes, as you move towards uh, the the summer solstice in the other hemisphere, or or in other words, your winter solstice, whether you're on the north or south pole, the sun is always below the horizon. It's still circling around, but it's just always below the horizon and you never see it. And in fact, it circles around further and further away from the horizon until the solstice, and then it comes back towards the uh, the, the, um, horizon until finally six months later at the next equinox it, it you, you finally or just after the next equinox it finally rises above the surface of the horizon again and you can see it and then it will circle around you uh, once again so that's at the pole that's the extreme at the pole at the pole it's the sun circles around you at a height above the horizon dependent upon the time of year at the equator the sun circles right above you from east to west. And only its relative position changes. It sort of shifts sideways towards the south or to the north, um, depending on the time of year. What about at mid-latitude? So, say, halfway between the equator and, and the pole, because not many people live exactly at the equator and even fewer people live exactly at the pole. Well, that's when the situation is most complicated, because if you imagine, imagine these sun paths, that the paths that the sun is following as it, or as it, um, traces across the sky of course this is caused by the rotation of the earth but we imagine the sun going across the sky now these these uh, paths form circles which are parallel to the horizon at the poles because it's circling around the horizon whereas if you go to the equator these circles are perpendicular to the horizon uh, that's why the, the sun spends half of its time above the horizon and half of its time below the horizon well, at mid latitudes, the lines uh, that the pa- that the, the paths that the sun follows are neither going to be perpendicular nor parallel, but halfway in between, they're sort of tilted uh, relative to the horizon. So, what actually happens uh, at mid latitudes? Let's start with the equinoxes, because that's the simplest case. At, at the equinox, uh, the sun rises in the east. That's that's the same as at, at the equator. But instead of passing directly overhead, it sort of moves uh, in the direction of the south. And it will be facing relatively southward at noon of the day, and then it will move towards the west and set in the west. So the sun never passes directly overhead at, at these mid-latitudes uh, on the equinoxes. It, it rises in the east and, and it reaches its highest point above the horizon at noon, but never gets uh, fully directly overhead. The difference between winter and summer in these latitudes is that essentially uh, these Curve, these tilted curves that the Sun path is following shift towards either the south or the north in the same way as they do at the equator. The difference, though, being uh, now they're tilted. So in the wintertime, the Sun rises uh, to the south of the east, again that's the same as at the equator, but now it, r- it rises uh, somewhat above the horizon towards the south, but it never gets very far above the horizon, and then it sort of quickly sets again somewhere south of west, so it never gets fully over to the west. And so because of this, the Sun doesn't spend very long above the horizon, and the days are short. Conversely, in summertime at mid-latitudes, the Sun rises somewhere north of east, uh, so on the other side of east now, and it passes all the way around, raising higher and higher above the horizon, but still never quite reaching directly overhead, and then curving back around and setting somewhere north of west. So in this case, it actually spends more than 12 hours above the horizon, and you get very long days. Uh, the further north you are, or further south you are, the further towards the pole, the longer the days will be. Of course, until you reach the extreme case, where the sun actually never sets below the horizon, and you get a day that's 24 hours long. So this is much easier visualised than explained, but hopefully you've been able to mentally see what I'm getting at. And um, if you want to listen back over this when looking at a diagram, which I'll post up, or ideally even an interactive simulation, which you can find some, some really good ones, and I'll post uh, a link to one of those um, on the Facebook page of, of the podcast particularly because those sun paths are hard to visualise. But the basic point is that the, the, the path that the sun follows in the sky depends on your latitude, it circles around you when you're at the poles, it goes directly from east uh, over to the west above you when you're at the equator, and it follows a sort of complicated curved path, sort of diagonally across the sky in some sense, relative to the horizon, when you're at mid-latitudes. And the amount of time that it spends above the horizon increases during summer and decreases during winter. And that's one of the reasons why summers are warmer than winter, because the sun spends more time above the horizon. The other reason is because you're tilted relatively towards the sun, and therefore the sun feels hotter. And you will actually notice the sun feels hotter in summer than it does in winter, and especially if you live relatively close to the poles, that is at a a more extreme latitude. And the reason for that is not because we're closer to the sun, it's because we're tilted relatively more towards the sun during the summertime, and so it's heat or its energy, is spread over less of an area, whereas during the winter we're tilted away, and so its energy is spread over a wider region, and so it's more diffuse. So that's why the sun feels so different in winter and summer, and it's, it's a substantial difference as well. It's, it's um, at least a factor of two, and it might even be a factor of three. It's, it's, it's hard to get the exact numbers because, of course, the atmosphere interferes and complicates the picture, so insulation at the top of the atmosphere is not the same as insulation at the Earth's surface. But the point is, it is a substantial difference between uh, the amount of solar radiation per unit area in, in, in winter and summer. So that's why the, the sun is hot, feels hotter in, in summer than in winter. But how hot the sun feels is not the same, say, if you're standing out in the sun, and just, well, how hot does it feel on my skin? That's not the same as the ambient temperature. The ambient temperature is much more dependent upon wind patterns and cloud cover and things like that, whereas the, uh, the how hot the sun feels is mostly dependent on, on just um, how close you are to your summer or winter solstices. So the other effects of climate and weather, including global circulations of air and water, cloud cover and these other factors, we'll talk about in some future episodes. Here I just focused on um, the Earth's seasons and the axial tilt and how uh, they're related to each other. So hopefully that was relatively clear. I know it's difficult uh, without the diagrams but if, if parts of that were unclear, hopefully you'll be able to uh, follow up with uh, some diagrams and, and see what I'm talking about in some of the cases. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please uh, feel free to send me an email letting me know FODs12 at gmail.com fods 12 at gmail.com is my address and give me some feedback or even if you didn't enjoy the show I'm, I'm always open to suggestions. Another way that you can support the show is to go onto our Facebook page and uh, like that page, that's a way of getting updates about new episodes, visual aids and also sharing the the show with with friends you can also go onto one of the podcast aggregator websites like iTunes and leave a favourable review I always appreciate those so thank you very much for listening and I'll talk to you next time